radius of the observable universe is estimated to be about 46.5 billion light years, which is roughly, I don't even know how many football fields. It's also, as of 2013, 13.82 billion years old, which would make it now 13.82 billion and six years old. In all that space and in all that time, is it possible that life has only existed here? And now, and by now I mean, of course, this period from 3.5 billion years ago to 2023, that's what we're hoping to find out. FCAC is partnering with SETI, NASA, the ESA, the CNSA, and the CSA, the Canadian Space Agency, not those hippies who keep mailing me Kohlrabi, in conjunction with the NSA, the NSS, DARPA, and COPUS to finally move this question of whether there is life on other planets from TBD to AOK ASAP. So pop open something bubbly and snuggle up to a loved one for your own close encounter of the kissy kind as we discuss Steven Spielberg's close encounter. Z of the third kind. Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Chris, 1977, not 1985. Did I say 1985? You said, you said, what time is it? 1985. You I just said 1985, I, didn't you? I don't think I did. No? I think I, you know. Mm, if only you were recording estimated something. Estimated to be 46.5 billion light No, 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 not in your intro before you started recording your intro. Oh, you know. <laughs> you said. I was referring to this. Oh, you're referring to the TV guide for yes. Latchkey TV. That, that okay. yes. God. Already, we haven't even started and it's already. It's already not. It's already confused. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, I'm so excited to do this movie. I had a revelation watching this the first of the three times I watched the film wow. in preparation for this podcast. <laughs> oh. I watched it three times in the last week and a half. Your me being happy I, you, makes you happy. Your actual joy and excitement about a film does make me very, very happy. Just to talk personally, I realized something watching it. I did watch all the materials, all the making ofs, all the documentaries everything that I could get my hands on. Because I realized this is 1977. We're one or two years removed from Jaws. Star Wars, 76? Wasn't it also 77? I realized a fundamental truth about me. Mm -hmm. I was and am a Close Encounters kid, not a Star Wars kid. Interesting. And I grokked this watching it like I said, this third time through, because there's something that actually J.J. Abrams said and that Denis Villeneuve said in one of the featurettes on the 30th anniversary collector's edition of the film, which you can watch on iTunes. And Denis Villeneuve was talking a lot about what terrified him as a child watching Close Encounters was not the aliens. It was the divorce. It was the family stuff and the totally. way it was portrayed. And when he said that, that all kind of clicked for me. Not only in the Neary family, which is an intact family, although it separates. Spoiler. Spoiler alert for <laughs> 1977's Close Encounters. But in the Geiler family, Jillian mm -hmm. and Barry, which was much more closely aligned with my experience yes. of being a single mom and being the only male child. And I just think that the themes of the movie and what it was about and sort of the mystery of it and the naturalism mingled with the fantasticalness, coin a new phrase for filmic appreciation. Um, you can use that one for free. Yeah, or .com. that spoke to me. And I understand like Star Wars was a thing that I think got in the heads of a lot of other kids at this same time. So anyway, that was a revelation. That's neither here nor there. But No, no, that is the very thrust of it, I think. Everything that you're responding to, I responded to as well. The very fact that there is no question that there are aliens. We as audience yes. members, like we see it. It's not a thing of like, is he crazy, isn't he? Yes. You know. And so the drama of it and what's really unfolding is watching how it affects both yeah. the Neary family as well as the Geiler family. Yeah. But that's just the beginning because mm -hmm. what it gets yes. to, without going all the way to the end, that's something very different. It's also what makes it 
a great movie. So amazing now that we've done a few Spielberg movies, you can appreciate him for a lot of different reasons, but he doesn't yes. really get appreciated as like as this brilliant filmic auteur. But you know what I mean? It's so I know populist exactly. in exactly. a way that it... Yeah. That it no, I'm, I'm sort of resistant to him. I don't think of him, right, as an auteur. And yet when we were talking about Jaws, and it's a pretty interesting contrast between this yes. Jaws and then if you pick anything else in yeah. his sort of later career, he is, like you said, so populist. There's something that you cannot deny about the main line he has mm-hmm. to people's like soul as well as to their sense of entertainment and mm-hmm. fun and wonder and all those things. But he is so facile, so uh, mm-hmm. good with it that you forget that there is an actual soul sure. underneath and there are pretty dispositions, predilections, that he things that he likes to explore. The Ur Spielberg moment for me is when Neri and Jillian are on that brilliant set, which is the bend of the highway, and yeah. the spaceships round the corner and, and breeze by, and then in a perfectly Spielbergian beat later, the tiny little cute red dot of light follows the spaceships. Uh-huh. And that's just such a Spielberg thing. The confidence to go for the emotional, comedic, button to something that is truly amazing that has just occurred. And that happens over and over and over again in this movie. For me, this is by far my favorite Spielberg movie. I could watch it over and over again. And like I said, watching it a few times this time, I really only set out to watch it once just in preparation for the podcast. But then I read so many interesting things about the making of it that I had to go back and watch it again to see kind of how it fit together. Mm -hmm. Because the other thing that I was blown away by, it's an analog movie which technologically holds up to this day, which is in itself a stunning accomplishment. You know, there's no CGI in this era of making a movie. In fact, they talk a little bit about how they were really uh, the first film production to experiment with what would become CGI, but it just didn't look good enough. It didn't look as good as something that was practically and physically there. Yeah, yeah. And then also deconstructing the movie that he had made and that he knew intuitively as a filmmaker that he was missing some key scenes that added mystery and drama. The whole beginning scene, which takes place in what, the Mexican desert? Yes. Where the planes from World War II are located. He added that because he already had those pilots like emerging off the mothership at the end of the movie. And then sort of like you could efficiently set up who those guys were because- they come off the ship and they say it. It's so simple and so obvious, Yeah, but that doesn't make it any less impactful no. or intelligent. This was the first movie that I ever saw, and I always mm-hmm. thought that I saw it when I was like two or three. Yeah. It probably makes more sense that my parents probably took me when the uh, re-release happened, 80 yeah. or 81, something yeah. like that. Yeah. The thing that I remember most specifically is meeting the aliens and the sort of back and forth with the music. Yes. And partially being like, oh, I'm so tired, I want to go to bed. But also being fascinated by this nonverbal communication between Mm -hmm. the humans and scientists and the aliens, which in the same way that it appeals to the aliens, it's something pre-verbal that anybody could understand. This is one of the scenes I remember as a kid fixating on. It's the air traffic control scene. I just loved this scene. It's the naturalism of it, which I guess doesn't always occur to me as the first thing I would think of when I think about a Spielberg movie. Totally. But the deployment of naturalism here adds so much to what's coming. So the first scene in the film is the desert scene where these intact World War II bomber planes are located. And we're introduced to the Francois Truffaut character, to Bob Balaban. I sort of forgot about Bob Balaban Mm -hmm. being in this movie. He's so quirky and imbues this sort of throwaway character who has such a, talk about a thankless role in a movie. You have to basically interpret French to and from every other character, but he makes it funny and he makes it engaging. So then we cut to the air traffic control center in Indianapolis where the concept of UFOs is introduced. Looks like extra bright landing lights. I thought Air East had his landing lights on. 
Could be a satellite. Aries range. 31, I He's have the primary target now in your 10 o'clock position. Uh, five miles here. I've never seen like that. Uh, the traffic is proceeding north eastbound, no altitude readout. Roger, Center. Traffic's rolling over now. Wait a second. Stand by one. Okay, Center. Aries 31, the traffic has turned. He's heading right for my windshield. We're turning right immediately and leaving flat level 350 now. Aries 31, descending 19, flight level 310. Great. Allegheny, triple four, turn right 30 degrees. Get on the order of the 45th recon wing. See what the hell they could be testing up there. And Aries jet descending to maintain flight level 310. This is Indianapolis Center. Do you have any test operations? Restricted area 517, do you want to report a UFO? Over. EWA 517, do you want to report a UFO? Over. It's such an amazing scene. Like the way the shot we're looking at now is the cutaway from the great David Anderson playing the air traffic controller at the center of the scene. And then we're now looking at the faces in the screen yeah. that he's looking at. I got the impression that this is what opened it originally. When the movie was a big success, they got one and a half million dollars to shoot a few more scenes, which I thought included the planes and the boat in the desert. I believe so. Spielberg says they rushed the movie into theaters because the studio was having financial difficulties. It would be interesting to go back and watch the original. I know that the desert scene, maybe the ship found in the desert scene, mm -hmm. and then famously a scene that was in the middle version where we get to see what Neary sees inside yeah. the mothership, which Spielberg always regretted putting in the movie and took out for this director's cut. So yeah, that scene, I don't know why. There's something about the naturalism of that. There's so much mystery that's built up because it is such a specialized thing and, and the stuff that they're saying yes. doesn't really make a difference right. except you can tell by the way that they're reacting and then you have this building you have one person speaking and then they start speaking over it's each other Altman-esque yes the layering of the reactions really starts building the tension you have at the beginning one man looking yes. at the screen and by the end of it you have all of these people <laughs> gathered around because they're all fascinated so even if you don't understand the words you're able to see it visually the drama uh, the drama building it's not a throwaway scene because yeah. it's an important part of the trifecta of setup scenes before we kind of get into the Neary's and his experience and kind of how that yeah. tears him apart. But like you're saying, there's this lingo that they're using to communicate as air traffic controllers and right. pilots, and that's not explained. You just sort of like know that there's something going on. The perfect casting of this guy, David Anderson, who I think this was his first film. I can't imagine he was not an actual air traffic controller. He has credits going up through 2007. But the mystery of those two scenes you're kind of introduced in such brilliant ways to, in the first desert scene, kind of like this very immediate kid-like mystery of like, how do these planes get here? And then in this thing, you're introduced to the concept of like unidentified flying objects and also to the concept of kind of like, we don't want to report one of those. You don't want to be that person to go out on a limb and say that you saw something that you actually saw. And I think also seeing this 
through a kid's eyes. I think that's part of what terrified Denis Villeneuve watching this family split apart over one man's obsession. Mm -hmm. But I also think it's part of what makes it appeal to a kid in a way. It's just a sense of wonder and mystery and also like realness and kind of threat. We don't really get a moment of rapprochement between the Neary's. Like he's going to space and leaving his family. And that's something that Spielberg says he would never do now because he made the film before he had children. And yet at the same time, he might not make it, but it adds stakes to it. Yes. I also found parts of this really difficult to watch, specifically because the theme of somebody who's like sure of something and unable to communicate it. Yes. It was really so sad, sad and also wonderful. Like the- the, It's kind of claustrophobic, isn't it? Like uh, you're kind of like, ah, just someone believe him. But actually more like, would just stop. Stop throwing dirt into the thing. Stop for a second and just tell your wife, like, look, this is what I'm doing. Like, you know, I understand that there's, you know, feverishness. Conversely, if only she could listen and be like, okay, this will be a mess to clean up. But like, okay, I'm going to trust him a little bit. It was painful in a good Mm -hmm. way to watch, especially because there was also a scene Mm -hmm. before where he brings her out to look for the, and she's reminiscing because it was a place they used to go and make out. The disconnect between them I found heartbreaking and yet very sweet. Here it is right here. Roy, what did it look like? It was like an ice cream cone. What flavor? Orange. It was orange. And it wasn't like an ice cream cone. It was... It was more like a shell, you know, it was like this. Like a taco? Was it like a, was it like one of those Sara Lee um, moon-shaped cookies, those, those crescent cookies? Don't you think I'm taking this really well? I remember when we used to come to places like this just to look at each other. Like the screen, it's a beautiful visualization of what's happening. They are physically touching, but he still has his eyes at the sky somewhere else. That is a theme that I always find fascinating. We know that he's not totally nuts, and yet we still see that frustration and the difficulty of how much pain he's putting the people around him through. And yet at the same time, it would be a pity if he were... To not follow this. I really got a lot out of listening to J.J. Abrams and Denny Villeneuve. He said that in the 70s, what was the thing that was most terrifying to kids? It was nuclear war or divorce. Yeah. And my parents were divorced. And it was not as widely an accepted thing as it is now. I remember being in grade school and being kind of mocked for having divorced parents. Nowadays, that would never, that's not the thing kids reach for to hurt each other in the modern age. But in 1977, I think that was still such a, a, not a new thing, but it was becoming more widespread. No, no, I I think I would call it a new thing. Of course, things are happening for some time, but it was becoming something in society. I remember sitcoms and movies and stuff. Like, you know, I know you don't don't like it and I've never seen, but uh, Kramer versus Kramer. Sure. I think part of the reason that made such an impact when it did, because it was a thing that people were dealing Mm -hmm. with uh, in a way that they simply hadn't been before. Yeah. When you start with like in E.T., you have a stressed 
single mother with a bunch of kids who are unruly and wild and kind of like have their own internal love and logic Mm -hmm. and may appear kooky, crazy, messy to the outside world. You have such dramatic clay in your hands uh, with Melinda Dillon and the brilliant kid that's cast in the the mother-son couple that's opposite the Neary's. You already have some dramatic tension. And it's so fascinating to listen to Spielberg and say that the origin for him for Close Encounters, which he wanted to make this before Jaws, that the origin was a very touching, familial memory of going out with his father in the middle of the night to watch a meteor shower. This familial moment was the impetus for this movie and other things that he would go on to do. But it's kind of fascinating that in so many movies, there are broken families. There are families trying to come together, families trying to become a family, an AI, or all these other kind of great, weird examples. Yeah, but like, you know, I wouldn't call it a a trope for him because it it seems to be so much a part of just the way he views the world. We have seen, because of his influence, it does become a trope from other people who are like, this is just a a way to, you know, do a shorthand and to get people on your side. And, And the insincerity will often show, whereas there's something undeniable about the way that, like you said, that he uses humor mm-hmm. and appealing to sentiment. And again, I, sometimes I use words like that and it sounds like it's diminishing, but it's not. Like yeah. the best way possible of appealing to sentiment to people's heart and uh, innocence. As divorce entering the mainstream culture in the late 70s, cynicism enters the culture at various times and becomes cool. It's cool to be detached. Yes. It's cool not to care. And so I think Spielberg suffered and suffers from that from time to time because I still remember this day uh, sitting in the Zigfield, and it was when AI came out. And I remember sitting behind two guys who were obviously like film nerds. And there was some little moment, I can't remember what the moment was, but it was the equivalent moment of the little cute red blob of light. And it was a Spielberg moment. And I remember one of the guys who were sitting right in front of me turned to the other guy and went, oh, Steven. <laughs> <laughs> That's what he got reduced to too often, I think. Yeah. It's also partially him, too. Because, yes. you know, nobody, as much as I said that it's not usually a trope for him, you know, anybody can get, sometimes can get, like, I remember watching Minority Report, a movie mm-hmm. that I actually liked quite Love a bit. Love Minority Report. But I'll tell you, some of the humanistic mm-hmm. comedy beats in there felt so off and wrong mm-hmm. because it, it did feel, and again, you know, I don't know the man's life. Uh, but to me, it did seem almost like I'll do my thing mm-hmm. and without, and with sort of only half. Mm -hmm. thinking about it. So it stuck Mm -hmm. out. It's also interesting to hear how he has changed. You know, you had mentioned how he would never make this film the same way because of his Mm -hmm. relationship to his children. He also said, this is somebody else who said it, but I think it's it's right. This is a young man's film, a film with its arms and eyes wide open, with none of the paranoia and xenophobia which plagues us today. And Spielberg asserts as much, confessing that it is the one film that dates him the most, that most makes him realize how much he's changed in the 30 years since its release. And then they go on to cite, like, for example, they call War of the Worlds almost like Close Encounters turned inside out because it does treat aliens as a threat. I love Lincoln and I love (laughs) Munich. Sort of later Spielberg, like this sort of more adult him. Sure. It's really interesting to see what he was interested in with those, Mm -hmm. certainly with Munich, this sense of like of guilt and how doing things will sort of weigh on you. Whereas with in this movie, there's no sense yeah. of anything weighing on you. And then if you go back to Jaws, as much as I love Jaws, what's yeah. the amazing thing about Jaws is that it's a perfect piece of entertainment. Yeah, it's devoid it of really, any human. It doesn't have a thought <laughs> in its head, like a shark itself. Sure. So it's just interesting to see him grow both as an artist and as a human and to see what he's interested in change yeah. over a very long and enviable career. I guess that's the thing I'm I'm starting, starting to pay attention to now is what you're talking about, which is an arc in a filmmaker's career, yeah. which I think of Spielberg as such a monolith. There's 
There's a quote from a forthcoming ESPN documentary about Bill Belichick, the greatest pro football coach of all time, and Nick Saban, the greatest college football coach of all time, having a conversation about their shared experiences together. And Nick Saban has a line that says, when you've gone to the mountaintop so many times, you become the mountaintop. Mm. And it's like Spielberg became this mountaintop that you don't think of him as like a filmmaker who, like you're saying, has these different late career shifts and attempts to do really incredible things. Yeah. I mean, but when you watch a movie like this, that's my God, he was what, 25, 26? It's like insane to think about being able to do this. And there's yeah. a lot of people that marshaled their talents and resources to help him make close encounters of the third kind. But even when you're watching making of featurettes and you're seeing him there, like he knows what he wants. Mm-hmm. When you talk about the whole mountaintop thing, I, I'm sure Steven Spielberg has the humility to know as visionary as he is and as hard as he worked, there's a certain amount of luck and circumstance that goes into being at the right place in the right time mm-hmm. for your films to have the impact that they do, which allows you to then make the next kind of thing, you know, not just the arc in terms of your artistic vision, but also the biography and the life, that that's part of it too. Like, as he put it in one of the making of documents, documentaries, this would have been the hardest film he ever shot if he hadn't already shot Jaws. And would he have been able to have the calmness and presence of mind, which Francois Truffaut remarked upon? Yeah. Apparently in working on the movie, he was very impressed with Spielberg as a filmmaker, Mm -hmm. specifically as a leader, as a way he marshaled people's resources. Yeah. Would he have been able to do it in quite the same way had he not had the very difficult experience of having to do all this with the ground shifting underneath you because you're on a boat in Jaws? (laughs) Well, he said like after Jaws, I just knew I only wanted one thing. I just want to shoot everything on a soundstage. <laughs> I do not want to be on location. Of course, they ended up going to some locations. They went to Alabama. They did go to India. Uh, California desert filled in for- but Listen, it's the desert. It's, it's the desert. It's a far cry from the ocean. It's still, it's still, <laughs> and I loved looking at sort of the behind the scenes stuff of the various locations. This is another scene that as a kid kind of haunted me. This is really the first time you hear the five note musical sequence mm-hmm. when they visit the Indian village where all the people have had a visitation. <laughs> It ends with this great shot of all the fingers pointing to the air. Where did the the sounds come from? Up there. What an incredible shot. You have this incredible color field thing where you have all of these guys wearing these beautiful yellow saffron robes being overtaken by a wave of people running through them in white. It's such a great, weird, cathartic scene. And I think that the use of chanting, there is a little hint of the theme, I think, in the scene where the planes are found in Mexico. Uh, The old man says something and there's a little musical hint. But I think this is the first time you hear those five tones, but doing it in voice makes it ominous and scary, yet also warm and human. We as the audience are never made to feel like it's a threat. And even when, like when you look at the scene in the house where the kid is basically snatched by the aliens, like Mm -hmm. pretty fucking horrifying. And I think that's a scene Spielberg would do differently now as a parent, because 
it's horrifying on the sense that here's a mother and her little three-year-old child is taken away through a dog door, as far as she knows, never to be seen again. It's terrifying, but it's also a little humorous. And yet we also somehow, I don't know why, we somehow know it's okay for the kid. I don't know if I had exactly the same reaction. Like there's a fear there, but it's not fear of a threat Mm -hmm. because we've never seen the aliens. We haven't actually seen them do anything bad or anything. It's just the kind of fear of the unknown, Mm -hmm. which of course the mother and the child react very, very differently to. Yes. Yeah. Like in signs, it's much more threatening. It's much more horrifying. Whereas here, it's more just unknown. It's unknown. There are these strange things happening. The vacuum cleaner moving on its own can be funny, but it's also just unsettling to have something Mm -hmm. you think you understand start behaving in a way that you don't understand anymore. It's funny, when we listen to Spielberg, he's really, really good at articulating really complicated things about the movie making process. I've never heard him have more sort of regret talking about a movie that I personally and many people are so transfixed by and moved by. And it's because I think it was his most personal film for him. And he looks at it and he sees where he was naive or as yet unevolved or just the age that he was, you know, unmarried guy without kids. And also, I think he says in one of the things, genuinely interested in this question of, is there life out there? Yes. And uh, he makes reference to the work of J. Allen Hinnick, who has a cameo in the film. He had certainly been reading him, was saying at the time, I don't think he says that he was a believer per se, but it was, he was more towards being a believer in 100%. 100%. UFO, you know. 100%. And so that's another part of his evolution. Yeah. And you can see that there's part of it that's wrestling with those questions and, and fascinated with it and thinking like, oh, hey, if what Hennick postulates is true, how would this actually affect people? And it would really yeah. blow your life apart. And yes. I think one element of his genius is that when you think about it that way, because it, it seems so simple, and yet it's so incredibly powerful at the same time. Simple's hard, Chris. J. Allen Hennick. So that's where we get the title I loved the title, too. Mm -hmm. I loved the unknown inherently present in that string of words together. Of course, it's the perfect title because it's mysterious and it's familiar, but it's just at a remove. We feel like we can touch it, but we can't quite wrestle it down to the ground and figure out what the hell it means. Bullcast and Crew is brought to you by Two Different Guys on a Bench, a new comedy series from American Vandal star Ryan O'Flanagan. Two Different Guys on a Bench, where Ryan talks to Ryan on a bench. We keep the comedy simple, folks. Two different guys on a bench videos can be found now on Facebook at Chuckler Comedy. Like and follow Chuckler for the latest and greatest short form comedy videos. Chuckler, original comedy delivered daily. Two things in the cast. It's it's so funny how after making Jaws with Richard Dreyfuss, Dreyfus wasn't his first choice. And yet Dreyfus in this role is so of the 70s too. He's such the suburban put upon dad who is a child. And that was his ultimate selling point to Spielberg was like, you need a man who's a child at heart. And of course he was able to embody that and all the wonder. Dreyfus too, like Spielberg doesn't get that actorly credit. He doesn't get the De Niro, not that he frankly has deserved it for 25 years, but he doesn't get that level of admiration. Like Mm. He's so versatile and so believable. I think of him as being versatile and believable and sort of surprising. I guess every time I see him and I'm like, wow, that's different than that. And 
why him? But I don't know, I guess. And he does mm-hmm. does sort of great. Like you said, he's a perfect embodiment of the 70s mm-hmm. in, the, in the same way that when we talked about Body Snatchers, he has a sort of shambling quality. Mm-hmm. He is not conventionally mm-hmm. handsome. He's yeah. not physically sort of virile looking. Yeah. And yet he has this mm-hmm. wit, humor, confidence. And emotion. Uh, and emotion. emotion. Right. And that emotion is so, so right at the there. surface. You know, it's interesting. Like you said, the character is very much a guy who is young at heart somewhat. Mm-hmm. And I guess this is meant to be what the aliens are drawn to and mm-hmm. why they give the message to him. Yeah. And I think there's an overlap between what you said of him being sort of an everyman of the 70s, which comes to his mm-hmm. angry speech towards Lacombe and Bob Balaban's character. And what he says seems to really bring all of those things together, mm-hmm. being like, I'm sick of, you know, I was promised this kind of world, but I've got this kind of world. And mm-hmm. that is where, even though the film is so optimistic, it overlaps with the sort of 70s era yes. post-Watergate cynicism. What I love so much about the scene, and we will play it here, even as he's at his angriest, he has this one turn where he smiles. That's the kind of thing that Dreyfus does that's so fuck. It is, to me, the technicalities of acting. Yeah. It is choice. It's funny because when you watch him talk, like now, He's a little self-deprecating, yes, Mm -hmm. but he's also, I don't know how to say this without insulting him. He has an actorly pomposity at the same time, which if you were Richard Dreyfuss now and had the career that Richard Dreyfuss had, I could understand. Like, please feel free. You were a huge movie star. Well, he had that even before. True. Like, he, yes. And this, I guess, is a pattern with him. Every time a big movie opens, he complains about it and then backtracks. (laughs) And I guess even with this, even though he had lobbied to play the part and finally gets it. That's just part of the process, man. Well, you know, if Steven had done what I said, ponied up for real spaceships, I could have reacted better (laughs) in some of those shots. He does have a whole section Um, where he's sort of like, well, what are we reacting to now, Steven? It's like a fucking spaceship. Just a fucking spaceship, man. Which is amazing (laughs) because actually, those shots where people are meant to look a god in amazed wonder have to be so hard to do. The subtlety on his face, his lip just moving, his eye, this sense of wonder and fear, like maybe I make more of that to do that because I don't know how you do that other than like, do you sit and stare at yourself in a mirror and like practice it over and over and over again? And it's kind of like a a narcissistic loop of weirdness that you just don't want to know about. That's one way to do it. Or... He complains about stuff and all of those things are certainly true. And Mm -hmm. he would be the first to admit most of those things. But it's also because, and this is what what does make him a great actor, is his emotions are very close to the surface. It's his... His instrument, Chris, go ahead and use it. It's appropriate now. I know it's painting <laughs> you. Like his gooey center is actually like on the outside. But yes, yeah. it's it's a well-calibrated instrument. Well, here's the scene you're talking about. They're getting ready to go to the Devil's Tower location, which the government has figured out through Bob Balaban's character being a cartographer in another life. Once the five-tone sequence is pumped out into space, they keep getting back numbers, yeah. which Balaban's character figures out are coordinates, which is basically pre-cell phone text, like, hey guys, let's meet up behind that monument thing. You know, people often say like, gosh, how did we ever meet up pre-cell phones? We this is how. Each other we would have to send each other in, in space, yeah. mathematical <laughs> equations. And here's Francois Truffaut, Bob Balaban, and Richard Dreyfus. Avez-vous des maux de tête, des migraines? Having headaches, migraines. Yeah. Irritation des yeux et du sinus. An irritation in your eyes and your sinuses. Yeah. Des mangeaisons, des allergies. You have hives. You have uh, allergies. Des brûlures sur le visage et sur le corps. You're burning uh, on your face and on your body. Yes. Who are you people? Look at this. Yeah, I got one just like in my living room. Who are you people? Je pensais. Oui, Monsieur Neri, please, one more question. 
N'avez-vous pas fait récemment une rencontre Have you recently had a close encounter? Une rencontre plutôt inhabituelle a close encounter with something very unusual. Who are you people? Monsieur Neri, s'il vous plaît, regardez bien les visages de ces gens, de ces hommes et de ces femmes, et puis dites-moi si vous les connaissez, ou alors sont-ils des étrangers pour vous to you? Yeah, except for her. Et vous êtes cru obligé, allez-vous, de venir ici Mais qu'espériez-vous trouver But what did you expect to find? An answer. That's not crazy, is it? Je crois qu'on pourrait les mettre dans l'hélicoptère avec les autres, je parlerai au Major Walsh. Il faudrait peut-être euh, vérifier sa crédibilité. Non, j'ai confiance dans mon intuition. Ces gens-là ont été choisis au hasard. C'était eux, ça aurait pu être d'autres. Ils n'ont rien de spécial. Ils sont simplement trouvés au bon endroit, au bon moment. Oh, 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 hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it. Is that it? Is that all you're, you're gonna ask me? Well, I got a couple of thousand goddamn questions, you know? I want to speak to someone in charge. I want a large complaint. You have no right to make people crazy. You think I investigate every Walter Cronkite story there is, huh? If this is just nerve gas, how come I know everything in such detail? I've never been here before. How come I know so much? What the hell is going on around here? Who the hell are you people? And it's just a, such a brilliantly staged scene. Cinematography, Vilmos Zygmunt and Steven Spielberg. Just you have a, to me, 2001 reference in Ooh. the front of the frame, having two people that are speaking directly uh -huh. to each other. And it reminds me of Hal in the pod bay scene where Hal is in the middle of them, but in the other room. Yeah. And he's reading their lips. I'm like the person who sees 2001 references in everything. That shirt you're wearing right now is clearly a reference to which I'm glad Dave you noticed. Batista character. Uh, yeah, no, no, you are a lot like uh, Paul Neary, <laughs> right? That's what you were getting at. <laughs> Another just funny aside: I had forgotten that Terry Gar was in Close Encounters, like Julie Haggerty in Airplane. A joy to rediscover how brilliant a comic actor Terry Gar is. Man, she could do. <laughs> something that no one else could do. She could bring a fully formed character to the screen. And I guess it's largely her own persona. Although when you watch her talk, she's much more reserved say, in yeah. real life than and she is. And when she in talked these, about yeah. the amount of thought that went into it and then watching it, I mean, it's all there. It's the, it's the kind of thing when somebody's making those choices and thinking of backstory and all that stuff, you know, yeah. it may or may it not sound work a little frou-frou. But that character, when the 40th anniversary, when there was that master edition, the final yes. one that came out, I was listening to a reviewer talk about it and was saying, like in some ways it's a really thankless character that she has and that this male who leaves the family mm -hmm. you know she is almost seems pushing mm -hmm. him away because she doesn't which I can see in the abstract but boy I think she gives such humanity and you really do feel her genuine frustration yeah. and here are two people that I think ultimately are kind of mismatched mm -hmm. in the sense of what they actually wanted if it wasn't this, it'd be, it'd be something else. But what they actually wanted is just very different. And to me, she doesn't feel like shrewish or sort of any sort of negative, misogynistic no. caricature. She feels like such a real character who has a partner who has a very different way of viewing the whole world. Well, she has the feeling of your suburban mom who yeah. is dealing with a lot of shit, even if we're only seeing her deal with the household shit and the kids and we don't see her having the career or whatever. What's hilarious is that Spielberg 
Spielberg cast her after seeing a coffee commercial <laughs> because he was blown away that in this 30 second coffee commercial, she did all the business of selling the coffee, but also imbued it with like a real character. Yeah. That he was kind of like, I can't believe, how did she do that? Like, he was aware how technically difficult that was. And that's basically how he cast her, is from this commercial. Look, when it comes to coffee, I don't take any chances. I use MJB. Now, heaven knows, some of my friends don't really know the difference. I mean, to them, coffee is just something to drink. But I like coffee. I mean, I really get disappointed if it doesn't taste good. So I have to use MJB. Because, well, because... Somehow it always tastes good when it should. And I'm not the greatest cook in the world. Pretty impressive commercial performance. She is so good. She's so good in this. She was so good in that. Good in everything. I think of her in Tootsie. She's wonderful. And you know what it also reminds me of? I never realized how much Lisa Kudrow basically just said to herself, (laughs) there's room for Terry Garr all over again. It's the same persona. You're blowing my mind. She also said brilliantly, which I love, this is the kind of thing I love about actors, that she was talking to Spielberg and she tried to talk him into letting her play both parts. Really? <laughs> she tried to talk him into letting her be the little boy's mom and Neary's wife. So like only an actor would like posit to a director that some stunt that would mean more to the actor's career than the film itself be considered seriously. Listen, just spitballing, throwing ideas out there. You know, it could work. It worked with the Eddie Murphy things where he plays everybody. Yeah, that's true. And then the other brilliant role. I mean, there's a lot of great acting in the film, but I think... Lance Henriksen. (laughs) Yes, his career-defining performance as Mike. (laughs) Lance did not get enough screen time. I mean, he had no no lines. He must have had some lines that they cut out. Like, he has a name. He's casted as Robert. Oh, it's Robert. He's standing around in a few scenes. It makes you think there's probably some other stuff that was filmed. But the kid. I mean, this is another takeaway that I had watching the movie this time. Carrie Guffey as Barry Guiler, who is this preternaturally incredible presence. It never even occurred to me to think like, wow, what an incredible captured performance until watching it and then kind of hearing Spielberg talk a lot about how they got what they got and the process of casting him. He's literally three years old. Now I have an eight-year-old. I can't make put her socks on in the morning. (laughs) Think about- Have you tried a gorilla suit? (laughs) Chris is referring to a famous story- of Carrie Guffey's face in the first visitation scene at the house. Spielberg plays it brilliantly where, like E.T. later, you see the alien has gotten into the food and all the food is spilled out of the fridge. And there's a brilliant one-take scene where the kid reacts this way with some alien thing that delights him and then reacts this way with one that kind of frightens him but then delights him. Spielberg goes into the whole thing about how they got both of those, which was... I think one person was dressed as a clown yes. who popped up. I don't know if it was out of a box or just let's say it was out of a couch. box yeah uh and so he looked at the clown was delighted and then somebody else pops up dressed in a gorilla suit and that's the one where he kind of is in first scared but then the guy takes the head off yes. and it's his makeup artist who worked every day with the boy and styled his hair and got him ready and that's why he has the smile of recognition of like oh friend yeah that's the kind of thing after i watched that feature i was like i have to see all these scenes again and then the scene where they come back he looks up in the sky and he says toys and spielberg says the reason that was a spielberg is on a ladder and he literally is unwrapping a toy he would buy toys and wrap them that's how he would keep carrie's attention would be to unwrap this toy and then show him this truck or this car, whatever it was. I wanted to play just a little bit of them talking about casting him. So this is Melinda Dillon. Stephen had one whole day set aside to finally decide on the child. 
and he had it had come down to two little boys. It was Zach and there was Carrie. And Zach was this little kid who was, I guess, three years old, and he had already decided it's his world. He's going to go out there and take it. And he was, he was this rough and tumble. He never did. He wouldn't do anything Stephen said, and he wouldn't mind his mother. And I was, I was crazy about him. I really liked Zach. And then Carrie was there, and Carrie was this. You, you everyone knows who Carrie is now, but he was this wondrous quiet, soft, attentive, listening child. And um, he was just so amazing. I remember I was torn between both kids because they were so good. They were equally good, and I had to make a choice. And, and I was just drawn to Carrie. I was drawn to his... Uh, I, I was just... There was something about Carrie that I liked, and I gave him the part. And, and he was wonderful. He was just a great experience to work with. So Kerry Guffey and his facial reactions, his ability as a three-year-old is, is, is phenomenal. If you watch the movie again, just watch it for how good this kid is. Um, Spielberg says they called him one take Carrie because all these things either had to be gotten in one take or right. he was so good that he would do them in one take. It also goes to Steven Spielberg's innate understanding yes. of how to get the performance. It looks different, I think, somewhat when you're dealing with, like I said, a three-year-old versus a grown-ass man. But in some ways, the thing is the same. It's trying to communicate with somebody in a language that they will understand yes. to draw from them something that is already there. Spielberg also says that if he had to pick one shot that represented the entirety of his film career. And he said this recently. It's the shot where B opens the door and the orange light is outside the farmhouse, which is such an arresting image yeah. to this day. That shot, just that one shot, contains really everything that he's about. The sense of wonder, the sense that there's something amazing out there if you just go and look for it. Hint of menace, the uncertainty. Say, right, that that amazing, it's not a childish, no. small, it's not without potential threat or potential danger, sure. Um, I wanted to ask you the one thing. You mentioned Roy kind of falling apart. There's only one part of the movie that I sort of was like, this could have been judiciously trimmed, and it's his bathtub crying jag breakdown scene which i just wanted to get where it's where i know it's going yeah so it's hard to watch it now and not be annoyed by that but it's sort of like i was gonna i was laughing a little bit because spielberg is the only director in history who releases a director's cut and actually removes time from yeah. the running time but i thought that scene where roy's really losing it i don't know what's happening to me it kind of pitches over for me a little bit and he becomes pathetic i think that happens before the um the shoveling scene right because i i'm with you i also as I said, I think both scenes actually made me uncomfortable because, you know, I feel for them both and their inability to communicate. But him being in the shower, like I know he's yeah. losing it. And this is the first time that he's like, boy, this is really everything else he does seems to be connected to the yeah. image that he sees that he's trying to build it and understand it. Going into the shower with his clothes on, like it, I don't quite get it. The thing that I do like about it, though, is, of course, you get to see their frustration together as a couple. Yes. How it's not just taking a toll on him. Yes how it's affecting them. But I, yeah, it could have been a little bit shorter. Another brilliant life of the 70s child thing and just life of any parent. There's the scene when he wakes the family up and they're going to go out and look for the aliens. And it's the scene that precedes the, the very sweet scene between Terry Garr sort of reminiscing about when we used to come out here and just look at each other. He goes in and she says, what about the kids? He says, oh, the kids. Yeah, I'll go wake the kids up. And he flicks the light on in their room. And the little girl is sleeping <laughs> with her butt all the way up in the air. The one kid is on the top bunk with his half his body hanging down over the bottom bunk. And the other kid on the bottom bunk is all splayed out. Any parent knows that you sometimes yeah. go in to your kid's room and you're like, what circus contortionist <laughs> is living in my child's room right now? Because they get into these bizarre sleeping positions. And uh, the, but the, 
the thing about that is just because it's reminiscent of going to see the meteor shower. Yes. And it's a dark reflection of him trying to share something with them, but they're also like, I want to sleep. Like, why, yeah. are you, why are you waking me up in the middle of the night? It's as if, you know, if Steven Spielberg hadn't been as sensitive a soul when mm-hmm. his father wanted to take him to see the meteor shower. I guess what precedes the throwing the dirt in, he wakes up after the fight. He's asleep at his train table and his little daughter is in her high chair watching. Duck a- Dodgers. Duck Dodgers in the 24th and a half century. And the, the little girl brilliantly turns to him and just says, Are you going to yell at me? And that's when he kind of has this moment where he's like, I'm done with all this. And he tears up all the UFO articles taped everywhere. And he's starting to dismantle the little mud tower that he made in his train table. And it's just as he's dismantling it, he breaks off the top of his tower and it resembles Devil's Tower. Just when he's about to be done, he yeah. gets cast into that. I can't remember what my point was in bringing that up. That was pretty cool. A good thing about that, because those two scenes are right next to each other. And you do get a good arc of him going a little bit crazy. This Mm -hmm. is the effect is having him wanting to get rid of it and kind of feeling like a fever has Mm -hmm. broken. But then there's that one more, that accidental thing, either accidental or depending on your thought of intelligent life in the universe. He's at it again. And that ends up being the end of of his marriage because after they leave, like you said, there's no reconciliation. Mm -hmm. I think there's one phone call, but even that gets interrupted when he actually sees the Devil's Tower on television. Which is really masterfully handled that- And you want to say something about Melinda Dillon, who's again, that's the other thing with the Spielberg stuff. It's just so well acted, like legit well acted. And that's the difference between something like this and like a Highlander. Highlander has (laughs) its own charm. These people all know English. That is true. Uh, But not only the quality of acting, but I think like interesting choices. And I think Melinda Dillon is so interesting and such an unheralded kind of really interesting actor who embodied something so specific. She feels like she could be right now in this movie. I thought she was amazing in this. Like Dreyfus having to be a little bit unhinged, Mm -hmm. but still you have to like her and trust her and think she's a good mother. She also has to be excited for this thing that is in some ways a threat to her child. Looking at her IMDb page, I have seen her in like two things. Yeah. But I don't know her, but she is just wonderful. And, you know, she had just done a film with Hal Ashby and she got cast like sort of at the last moment. The only thing that I had seen her in besides this is uh, she was the mom in Christmas Story, which I know you haven't seen. I haven't seen, but I read that and I laughed. Is she like this mom in Christmas Story or is she like every 50s mom with the the apron? And And yet there is part of her, like, and this is why (laughs) I remember her so vividly because you could tell like she does, she's, she is a little, this whole family is a little bit out of step, kind of trying to fit in, but she's got a little bit more to her her. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she's just, she's great. She's and really good. I was so blown away by her in this. And then the other person we got to talk about, I think I remember this too as a kid. You understand now why Spielberg would try to cast Francois Truffaut because as a director, this is a hero of his. Yeah. Truffaut having basically exploded a massive bomb in the history of cinema, maybe more so than anyone in this era. His first movie was 400 Blows. I just wanted to play you a little bit of Spielberg and Dreyfus talking about the casting of Truffaut. My main reason for casting Francois, and it was a pipe dream. Everybody has their wish list. And he was in the very top of my list but mainly because I had seen him in Wild Child and I felt he was such a tremendous human presence in that film. He just radiated so much com- compassion. Wanted the face that led the way to be extremely charitable and kind and optimistic. And, and Truffaut came into my mind like a snap of a finger. I remember being told one day that Francois Truffaut was gonna play the part of the doctor. And, and, and the whole movie took a notch up, you know, Stephen took a notch up, the studio took a notch up because he was so, and is so, uh, 
extraordinary figure. It said something amazing and, and reconfirming about our attitude of what Close Encounters was all about. If Close Encounters just a science fiction movie, Francois Truffaut never would have done that. But he also recognized the noble ambition of that film. That's why he said yes. Spielberg and all of them talk so movingly about Truffaut's embodiment of humanism and mm -hmm. warmth. And all these things you don't really ascribe to kind of the cool, Gallic, detached figure. But when you appreciate these movies, and I've talked before that one of my all-time favorite films is his movie Small Change, Mm -hmm. about the life of a group of children in a small village in France. His whole thing was heart and warmth and connection. It makes sense that the two would get along and that they're in such different contexts. What Truffaut did with Foreigner Blows blew up French cinema and world yes. cinema. But it is similar in, in the heart, what it's mm -hmm. appealing to, the reminiscence of childhood and mm -hmm. looking to those things. And they are both people who are uh, fascinated by the technical side mm -hmm. of making film. Being in France versus being in Hollywood, there's a superficial difference. And mm -hmm. yet, in the end, the, the soul of the two, it makes, makes perfect sense that they, would, uh, that they would go together. And also, it lends the movie and it lends the thing that the movie is doing a global field just to not have another American, totally. you know, chasing down the UFOs. Because it also feels so important for the, the spirit yes. of the film. I think one of the uh, featurettes when they talk about the Tower of Babel, yeah. that's that Bible story sort of being in the background. Yeah. And so much of this is about communicating. One of the great anecdotes that Spielberg says is, uh, and Joe Alves, who was the production designer on this and the production designer on Jaws, is a very funny Hollywood production designer who's indispensable in making of featurettes because he's the guy that had to go find places to shoot this stuff. Right. He had to figure out how to build the stuff that needed to be built. And that was a pretty tall order in 1975. For the landing set, which to the movie's credit, until I watched these featurettes, I never thought of that as a set. It never occurred to me that that's on a soundstage or what they turned into a soundstage. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It was a disused Air Force hangar in Alabama. They had to extend it and hang drapery around it in order to create that blacked out back and sides, which would be replaced with matte paintings and other visual effects. They talked about what they needed for that. Not just a huge space, but a huge space that is completely open with no load bearing yes. holes or anything in the middle of it. Joe Alves looked around the entire world. And this is the largest. So Spielberg is shooting on what is the largest soundstage in the history of movies. And he's thinking to himself, Francois is going to be so impressed. But Truffaut never said anything about it. Then when one of the pickup scenes where Melinda Dillon's character goes after the boy is missing, Joe Alves built that motel set, which is a really cool self-enclosed set yeah. for just one scene. It's just her looking at her drawings tacked up on the wall and then seeing a news, the same news report I think that Roy Neary is seeing, right? Yep. And figuring out that she's got a two go to Devil's Tower, Wyoming. And when Truffaut saw that set, he was like, oh, that is a set. And he was like all amazed. For him, that was the more impressive thing. The human scale set that really brought to life the inner workings of this character's mind. Volcast and Crew is brought to you by Out of Jack's Mind, a new comedy short video series from Jack Plotnick, co-writer and director of the Sony Pictures feature film Space Station 76, and current recurring guest on Grace and Frankie and Z Nation. Out of Jack's Mind, like and follow at Chuckler Comedy on Facebook or Chuckler.com. Chuckler, original comedy delivered daily. And then, of course, the music. <laughs> I mean, holy Christ, John Williams, 50, 50 Oscar nominations. He's won four times. He has one additional one, four times for overall score. Uh huh. Jaws, Star Wars, E.T., Schindler's List. How do you not win for this? Well, what did win? 
So it would be, this is, this is another thing that's confusing. You know, I don't like music on DVD menus. I also don't like the fact that I have to think for 25 hours, 1977 Oscars, is that the 1978 Oscars when I'm Googling it? Or is it the 1977 Oscars? Or the 1977 Oscars actually the 1976 Oscars? Yeah. Why can't we simplify that? I don't know. Uh, well, I mean, I know that there's a bill in front of Congress right now, but no, Moscow Mitch is not going to call a vote. Okay. Hey, it's Matt the Engineer. It's been a while. So Chris jokes about Congress passing a bill to align release dates with Oscar nominations. But interestingly, back in 2011, Congress did pass a bill to make sure loudness levels of commercials and programs were even because people complained so much about commercials being significantly louder than regular programming that it made its way to Congress. And while the bill, which is dubbed the Calm Act, which is Commercial Advertisement Loudness Mitigation, how about that for an acronym? Was passed in 2011 and implemented in 2013. We still have issues with commercials being too darn loud than programming. So A for effort, but not the best execution. Anyway, that's some of the stuff your uh, Congress is doing for you. Oh, wait, Star Wars A New Hope. So that would be the 1977. Yes. All right, so I'm looking for best score. Score. Best original score. Some guy named John Williams for Star Wars A New Hope. So I guess it's hard to be mad. Bullshit. It's kind of hard for kind of hard to be feel that he got robbed when he's the guy who won. I was hoping it was some forgettable score that won. So we could say, like, I'm sorry. This guy not only invented a two-tone theme that everyone around the world recognizes in Jaws, but now he's got a five-tone theme that everyone around the world recognizes. To me, this is John Williams' best score. It's the most interesting. It's the weirdest. It has elements from like the same way that 2001 has those Ligeti voices, the weird raising and falling voices. Mm-hmm. Um, it has little hints of that. And Williams talks about how the score for this was was different than his usual things and that it required two different things. On the one hand, it required that Ligeti-esque atonal dissonant stuff, but then it also required this romantic heart centered score. When we talked about the score in Jaws, there was mm-hmm. a similar thing too, that there are parts of it that have to be the threat, the fear, but yeah. then there are also the parts of it that, as Frank put it, good seafaring music, like yes. we're going on an adventure. Here's just a little bit of John Williams and Stephen talking about the origin of the five tones, because it's so funny to hear. I, I was just saying also anticlimactic, that something- Oh, uh, I didn't think so. Or, well, <laughs> well, well, maybe we're talking about two different things. Stephen kept saying it must be five notes. And I remember saying to him that if I could make it seven notes or eight notes. And I somehow felt that seven notes would have been too much of a melody. But five notes somehow, just intuitively, I felt five notes is more of a hello. To write a melody for five notes seemed harder to me than if I could have seven, eight, or nine notes. I could do better, I thought. And he said, no, 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 it shouldn't even be a melody. It should be more like somebody pushes a doorbell like Avon calling, you know, ding dong. It's not a melody. It's not even a phrase. It's just uh, musical intervals. And so John uh, uh, went through dozens, if not hundreds of permutations trying to find the five notes that pleased us. I thought we'd exhausted everything, maybe 300 examples of the five note variations within the scale. And Stephen said, no, there must be more. I will call a mathematician friend, ask him how many five note combinations within the 12 note scale that we have. So the chap rang us back an hour or so later, and he said something approximately 134,000 something or other. I mean, this, we, you know, we had barely begun to explore what could be done with five notes. So finally, in exasperation, we chose the little da 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 da, or the one that we have, which is one on one on on my list. I put a circle around it. 
The next day we come back and I play some more. She said, play me the one with the circle. We go back to that thing. And we kept coming back, finally said, well, I guess that's it. You know, must be the best we can have. I love hearing that stuff. I mean, the thing that I thought was sort of, the fact is like, yeah, I guess that's it. That's the one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you want Instead like a, of like a huge oh. revelation, like, yes, this is perfect. It's more like, all right. But I, I love that. I think that to me, just like the casting of the kid, yeah. it's like all these things that we all want to do, all these things. We want to, we want to succeed in show business. We want to make it as an actor. We want to make it as a component. We want our genius. Our, what do we do? The great I am must be involved in the success that we will rot upon the world. And then you hear these kinds of stories. It's like, John was like, yeah, well, I guess that's the one. You can't hear it as anything. Are you sure you want to see all 134,000 other options? But also there's the hint of when you wish upon a star. I didn't know that until I listened to this featurette where that was like the essence of the whole movie for Spielberg. Yeah. And that's why Williams in the final scene puts in a little hint of that melody to reference this kind of origin story. And also I just wanted to say the models. And I loved that. What's his name? Andy Murin, who is the guy who did a lot of the Star Wars models. There's so many fascinating anecdotes and stories about how they arrived at and made all of the spaceships and arrived at what the aliens were going to look like. That's what I wanted to talk about specifically was the aliens and the different ideas that they had to create them. And ultimately, there are multiple things going on. The funniest idea that Steven Spielberg wanted, and that they actually did do a camera test to see if this would work, was to put an orangutan yeah. in a spacesuit <laughs> and put him on roller skates so that it would slide down as yeah. if it were flying. And he does a pretty good job of telling, like, one, the orangutan would never let go of whoever was placing him there. <laughs> and the one time they finally did get it to slide. Of course, it was flopping all over the place. So within five minutes, they knew that wouldn't happen. Another plan was to use marionettes, which does mm -hmm. make its way into the film. There's one marionette and then one manipulated puppet. The first marionette that's used is, I think, the first spider-like yes. appearance of something. It's scary. And I think fittingly so, because it's the people on the ground don't know yet, are we about to be annihilated or right. given a handshake, even though we've had this musical relationship going on <laughs> prior to that. Could be a prelude to- Could be a prelude to, you know, he was going to have 190 marionettes and did some tests and it's just impossible. The orangutan anecdote is amazing. Like watching the deleted scenes, when you hear this stuff that Spielberg tried, you realize the discipline to not, like some director could have fallen in love with the orangutan idea and stayed there and it would have been a disaster. That's why I'm saying I get retroactively nervous that a poor decision was nearly made. Well, you know? I, and I like said, it makes it seem like a more deliberate yeah. choice. Another thing like that actually, where a successful thing where he actually did fall in love with an idea and didn't let it go away was the time where the spaceship plays the sound very strongly. And, yes. Uh, the glass breaks. The breaks. Glass, which I, and I guess there was a budgetary thing about that because yes. you, of course you have to shoot it a few times for coverage. And that Steven Spielberg's like, I want it. And if it's a money thing, I'll pay, I'll pay for it myself. Up. Which it, it's sort of the mirror of that. That it, sometimes you can have an idea that seems good, but you'll let it go. Mm -hmm. But also when something that seems like a small thing, but you know how impactful it will be. And as a child, that's one of the things I remember most about seeing the yeah. movie. I remember that, that bass tone shattering the glass. It's just yeah. like a kind of thing you remember as a kid. It's such a brilliant non-dialogue way to show otherness and that they're not of our world. But it also embodies, we don't mean to harm. The last thing about the aliens that I wanted to talk about was the middle section of aliens when they have a big group. That's apparently a bunch of young girls trained by a choreographer. Now wait, I want to ask you about this. Did you think that those aliens were meant to be children or did you think that they were meant to be aliens? That they were meant to be aliens. You it thought did not that. seem like they were children. Okay, see, I always thought that they were supposed to be alien children. 
Huh. This just may be the age that I was at the time. Now hearing how they did it, I guess to an observant kid, it just was obvious that those were kid movements. Sure. Spielberg said that he wanted to show different types of aliens to show that there's diversity even in alien worlds, just like there's diversity on Earth. But I always took it as a kid that the ones that came out first and last were like the adults and that in the sense of whimsy and wonder, we're letting the kids go and yeah. have some fun and that's why they were all milling about. But then come to hear the making of, those are meant to be the aliens. Yeah. They're supposed to be adults. And they showed the test that they did for the hand symbol that Truffaut does with the final alien, which is the only one that is I guess a that's puppet. One, like you said, the articulated puppet. Just going back to the, the girls in the second thing, he also enlisted a bunch of mimes yeah. to play humans that were supposed to slow motion yes. deal with the aliens that when they sped it up. Did you see Again, the clip they played of the fast moving aliens? It's so weird. Yeah. But it's also a thing. You explain that idea to me. I'm like, oh, yes, take my yeah. money. And yeah. you see it. It's like, huh. you can see why he cut it. To Steven Spielberg's credit, mm-hmm. not only that he came up with the idea, but he also <laughs> knew to get rid of it. Yeah. Did you know that R2-D2 has an uncredited cameo? Though I, I wasn't able to see it. Did oh, yeah, you? he showed it. Yeah. So that's I guess um, when watching the movie, I mean, like it didn't. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> didn't jump out at me. Oh, it didn't? No. Oh, I mean, I saw it right away. I mean, you know, I may not be a Star Wars kid, but uh, you but, can't get yeah, that by me. Dennis Murren, special effects legend. So he had just come off working on Star Wars. He and his assistant did a visual joke and glued an upside down R2-D2 under the mothership. And Spielberg's image for the mothership was a marriage of a oil refinery that he saw in India, which had all these lights on the tubes and the pipes, and the San Fernando Valley as viewed from above in Los Angeles. In the future, to hear them talk about... Steven Spielberg's original idea of just having this black thing that would sort of blot out the sky, which I'm sure would have been wonderful. But the idea of making it more tactile and real and the amount of lights, Mm -hmm. the need for light seems like a commonality between the species. I mean, I know that's sort of putting something on it. And yet intuitively, I think there's something that just makes it that much more Mm -hmm. real. The scene where they find the Cotopaxi, the giant freighter in the desert. I never knew that was a forced perspective shot and that actually what you're looking at is a model about two feet long that's just placed in front of the sand and the camera is put right on it and then a half mile away the actors and the helicopters are. I get the CGI world that we're living in and your imagination can go anywhere and Spielberg has utilized all that and this is like old man shakes fist at cloud to some degree but I can't help but be more impressed by movie magic of this sort where you're looking at craftsmen and women talking about building models, creating booths filled with smoke, creating cloud effects with salt water and fresh water. You have this sense of like how fun it was to figure this stuff out and how difficult it was. Now the job is just like a lot of people sitting in front of a lot of computers. To me, the analog warmth still speaks to me. Um, And also, as you mentioned before, another thing that I didn't really pick up until watching it this time was putting the movie in in the post-Watergate era. I think what's great about the way they do the government stuff, it's not just like government bad. Government, Government doesn't believe. Like the government does believe. The government is actually marshalling quite a lot of resources to engage and just keep it secret because of the hysteria that they probably correctly presume would occur. Mm-hmm. It's always funny to me, there's this scene where you have these bizarre red-suited astronauts getting ready to go, and of course none of them are chosen, and of course they choose Roy Neary. There is government obfuscation going on, but it's in service of something that they're excited about too. Right, and the overlap between, you know, Neary and Lacombe, they're on the Monsieur same page, Neary. even though they're coming at it from uh, from different places. I envy you, Monsieur Neary. Did you hear the anecdote about how he had the hardest time delivering? There was So there's the line at the end of the film. One scientist says to the other scientist, Einstein was right. And the other scientist says, Einstein was probably one of them, meaning the aliens. 
And that was supposed to be Truffaut's line. Oh, really? That yeah, I didn't, so okay. Truffaut was supposed to say, turns out Einstein was right, and Einstein was probably one of them. Dreyfus tells a story that after mastering plenty of other English dialogue, which he was really nervous about, because yeah. he said Truffaut was kind of afraid of people making fun of him. He said for months, Truffaut sweated over this Einstein line. Or it was Balaban telling a story. And he's like, I can never figure out, like, why was he obsessed over this thing? It's because he didn't want to be made fun of. And so then he comes to Bob Bowen and he's like, I got it. I got it. And then Spielberg decides to give the lines to someone else. And then Balaban says Truffaut was crushed that his lines yeah. were taken away from him. Well, I mean, I just love it, Chris. I don't know what else I can say. Uh, yeah, I thought it was okay. <laughs> Uh, no, it was it was beautiful. And it was so different than I remembered and so much deeper and uh, so many things that are to this day still unconventional and still different. Yes. And, and um, it's a credit to Steven Spielberg. I want to play something that you hipped me to this morning. Thank oh. God. <laughs> Talk about a blast from the past, man. If you're old enough to remember 45s, you might have remembered getting this. It's the disco version. John Williams did this. At first, I was like, there's no way John Williams actually did this, but come to find out. He, he was a jazz composer before yeah, he was doing it. It's actually film. less disco and more funk. Thank God they didn't use this for the end credits. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Did you hear what Steven wanted to use for the end credits? No. He wanted to play the original Disney version of When You oh, Wish Upon a Star. And they did that, and they played it at a screening, and the entire audience burst into derisive laughter. Yeah. So they switched it out. And I think John, some, there, I don't know what plays now. John, I think the John Williams Just anything that's not that. <laughs> we, let's move on to alternative casting. Sure. Put that one back. The top line alternative casting was, of course, Steve McQueen, which was Steven Spielberg's first choice. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was actually very, to hear him tell the anecdote, McQueen was very gracious. The top line to say, because he couldn't cry on cue. Yes. But when Steven Spielberg tells the anecdote, there's a little bit more to it. He just knew he would not be the right person for the, right. For the role. He, his emotions are not quite as close to the top. Uh, and when he's, he's like, I'll take out the crying on cue if you don't want to do it. And he's like... No, no, no. That's what makes the movie work. It's also funny because Spielberg, I think, rightly says he always thought of McQueen as an incredibly emotional actor. Yeah. He says it's funny because he hadn't gotten to know Steve McQueen at his time in Hollywood yet. And at the very least, he got to have this memorable time hanging around with McQueen. Right. But Steve finally told me he couldn't play the character. And I said, why? He said, because I can't cry on film. I've never been able to cry on film. This character... The way you have in your script, it even says he walks up the gate, he turns, looks at his family, and he, and he cries as he goes on to the mothership. And I said, okay, I'll cut out the crying. I'll cut out the crying part. He said, no, no. He said, the crying broke my heart. The crying actually almost made me cry reading the script. But he said, but I, once that camera's rolling, I don't think I'm going to be able to, to deliver the goods to you. And I respectfully have to say I can't do it. And it broke my heart. So Steve McQueen, that was his first choice, right? Yeah. Jack Nicholson, I've read two things. One that said it was because of scheduling. Another that he just thought he'd be overwhelmed by the special effects. Didn't want to do a sort of big special effects movie. They have a word for that. Ego. <laughs> Uh, Dustin Hoffman, Al Pacino, the sort of usual suspects. Yes. The one that I thought was sort of interesting, and here's, you know, uh, I guess Dreyfus wanted a lot of money. 
and uh, Julia Phillips was kind of balking at the amount of She's money. She's producer, famous producer Tandem. She wrote a very famous tell-all book called You'll Never Eat Lunch in This Town Again, in which she had a lot of unflattering anecdotes about herself, but also about Steven Spielberg. Oh, really? Well, what are some of the unflattering things she says? Well, about? on the one hand, she admits that she had a horrible cocaine addiction at the time they were making the film. Right. And she's still pissed off that he fired her. But she sort of doesn't get that you had a horrible cocaine addiction, weren't showing up, you weren't really doing your job. So she's like, he was such a perfectionist. You know, he demanded stuff like I show up at work and sure. You know, I mean, she did. She was able to finally get Dreyfus to sign. <laughs> all right. Was she the one who closed the deal uh, after Dreyfus was uh, sort of balking? Yes, yeah. there was some. I mean, after he lobbied Spielberg for two years, by the way, he talks about how he would subtly or not so subtly shit on all the other actors. <laughs> be like, well, you know, Nicholson's already a little crazy. A little crazy. So, <laughs> I mean, for him to go crazy, Dustin, huh? yeah, Dusty's great. Don't get me wrong. But well, but I guess but when it came down to it, after all that lobbying, he wanted a little bit more money. And I guess during that time, Steven Spielberg ran into uh, Roy Scheider, who said, <laughs> what about me? <laughs> No. Sorry, I've been laughing at that. I would like I to be that's like, the greatest like Scheider like anecdote Every alternative <laughs> casting always includes Android Scheider. I'd love to play Bippy Longstocking. Um, but no, so the studio was pushing, at that point, James Caan, but he wanted even more money. He wanted a million dollars. That's mm. fucking Sean Connery money. That's Sean Connery money. And plus 10% of the gross. Was. And so at that point, they went back to Dreyfus, and they're like, well, up it'll, you know... <laughs> They sort of met in the middle. It became Dreyfus. You know, Spielberg says that Dreyfus is the guy he went to when he needed someone who was essentially himself. Uh, we'd already talked about how Terry Gar mm-hmm. wanted to be, and uh, at least audition. I didn't know she was trying to do both at the same yeah. time. You know, you got to admire the hustle. Got to admire the hustle. Uh, she's the only one. For Jillian Geiler, for Ronnie Neary, besides Terry Gar, Amy Irving was the only other possibility that I saw. Wasn't she the future Mrs. Steven Spielberg? Uh, Weren't they married? Yeah, no, I think you're right. For Claude Lacombe, yes. two of my favorite actors were considered to be that particular Frenchman. Lino Ventura. Ooh, uh, love Lino Ventura. He would have been, I mean, I I love him. He's such a- He's great. Such a great presence. He would have been Ma- great. Even though, you know, he doesn't project the same kind of brainy scientist thing. I mean, I'm sure he could have done it. Yeah. But, you know, who would have been a little bit closer would have been Jean-Louis Trintignant or-, or Trintignant, however Sounds it's pronounced. Sounds like trigonometry to me. Have you it? ever seen Bertolucci's The Conformist? No. Have you ever seen Combat Dans Lille? No. Uh, did you see Amour, uh, Michael no. Haneke's two movies ago? Oh, I did see that. I he did was see the, that. the dad. The, oh, okay. Of yeah, the yeah. couple. He's an, and he was also in Happy End, which was Haneke's film uh, <sighs> after that. He's an amazing actor. Have we raved about him. Michael Haneke yet? No. <sighs> when realizing that he was considered for this, I was looking to see. I was like, what's Haneke doing next? And what is he doing next? There's nothing on IMDb. <sighs> Funny Games. I have to admit, Funny Games, to my mind, is the least of them. Oh, really? Yeah, I just I think like that's it. so brilliant. That contains what, for me, might be the most difficult scene to watch, that living room scene uh-huh. of Funny Games. It's an incredible shot of grief that doesn't let you off the hook as a viewer. It's so simple. It's so confounding. It's so brilliant. It's so disturbing. I remember that moment. I remember seeing that for the first time. And there's nothing going on other than a lockdown shot right. of this person's grief. He's a fucking genius. He is, a, yeah. Every movie of his, even Amour, which is a very life-affirming thing, even yeah. though it is about these death. people that are dying yes. and death. But right, even at his it ain't no Jiminy Cricket. I heard he's doing the Jiminy Cricket story next. An unconventional choice, but he's like, hey, I'm a lot broader than people think. <laughs> That's it for alternative casting. Steven kind of knew what he wanted. There wasn't yeah. a lot of messing around, except for the orangutans. Tried it, just <laughs> got rid of it. That guy got fired. That orangutan, Poor orangutan. gets residuals, though. Do you want to move on to Latchkey TV? Yeah, let's do Latchkey TV. On. Hello? Of course I'm going to 
So this TV guide has the Who's the Boss gang with Mona from, from our Brazil, episode on Brazil and Tony Danza, who you remember from playing other characters named Tony. And the great Judith Light. A star of stage and screen who, who's, I'm sure, on Broadway as we speak. In fact, I just saw yesterday, Hollywood Reporter had like a spread. They're giving some award to Judith Light. And I was like, oh, okay. Am I missing something from the film and TV career of Judith Light in the last I mean, 35 years? Isn't she the mother in Transparent? She's in something prestige oh, Maybe, now. okay. I don't watch TV, so. Oh, you're so smart. You want to be smart, just don't watch TV. Just just, actually, watch TV and just tell everyone you don't watch TV. <laughs> that's how you really, that's really smart. Uh, you know what seems to come up a lot, I don't know if this was just in rotation a lot, but The Littlest Hobo was on again. again. <laughs> you gotta watch this damn show. It also seems to be growing, because I thought it was a part two, and this part says it's part two of three. Jesus. So I don't know a if three-parter. <laughs> Yeah, there's a, a lot of this How Littlest Hobo How much dramatic room did Littlest Hobo need? But I don't know. I don't know that I would watch Littlest Hobo because I still don't care. Uh, but I probably would watch. It's uh, a dog, right? Is that is the Littlest Hobo's a dog? Like a ragamuffin, lovable, scrap-a-muffin dog on a train boxcar? Or is it an actual <laughs> human? Does it, it give keeps, you any information in no, the log nothing. line? It just keeps threatening to be watched. <laughs> but I ain't going to watch it. Uh, instead, uh, I'm going to watch Heart to Heart. Ooh, maybe Lee Wilcoff maybe. <laughs> from our Lee Wilcoff episode is on. A director stalks Jennifer, Stephanie Powers, the only living person who has read the script that he murdered to get. Wait, walk me through that again. A director murders an actress who's the only living person to have read he the script. He stalks Stephanie Powers. He's stalking Mrs. Hart because she read a script that he murdered to get. So, but why does her reading the script put him in peril? Probably because the director is going to say that he wrote it. And the fact that she's like, no, I read it when, you know, this guy, oh, that's, that's my guess. I mean, this just is a very knowing, inside knowing directors, episode. just know that there's murder and stalking. That's the important thing. Can I interrupt you just to play the Littlest Hobo theme? Sure. So if you want to join me for a while, just grab your hat, come travel like that's hobo style. That's a great intro. I mean, you see the dog is like trying to get into a glove box on a car to solve some kind of crime or mystery? Yeah, more it is a dog. I was home. right. No, you were right. Absolutely. But I'm, I just, I'm a little I totally disappointed. grokked that without reading anything about yeah. it. I don't know if he was trying to solve a crime, but I think there might have been an old donut well, in the glove box. No, bar. of course he's solving a crime. I mean, why else have a show based around a dog? Dukes of Hazard mm. uh, at 430, because I really did love Dukes of Hazard. Yes. Uh, Boss Hogg invites his nephew Huey, Jeff Altman. Of course. Is that one of the Allman brothers? The great <laughs> Jeff Allman. <laughs> I, I did not say that. It's, it's only Altman. when I said it. Uh, but that's, I guess, Robert Altman's less successful brother. To take another low down. <laughs> I love descriptions like this. To take another low down crack at the Dukes. Boss Hog Sorrel Book. But anytime you use another or still, it's like, you know what you saw last week? It's like that. Yes. You know, Jeff Altman, who you're making fun of, was a great guest on Letterman. Well, what do you do? The He's a comedian. So great. Oh, he, okay. yeah. All right, well, that makes sense. Though I would want to watch People's Court because I did really enjoy that show, too. Cases involve payment for photography services and money loaned to a former boyfriend. (laughs) Judge Joseph A. Wapner. But I also know they show People's Court a lot, so I'll catch that episode some other time. Is Wapner dead? Uh, I don't know. At 5 o'clock, I would watch Star Trek because it's the best. Which episode? Pretty famous one. McCoy, DeForest Kelly, searches for an antidote to a strange disease that seems to be driving Ah. the crew members insane. Kirk, William Shatner, Riley, Bruce Hyde. I don't know why he's like one of the leads and a guest star. Is that the one where they go to the other planet that we talked about before? No. They go down on the planet and then everyone on the planet has the virus. 
where they tell them they have the virus, and then it turns out they don't actually have the virus. Do you remember that one? I think this is the one where Sulu, the famous one where oh, George right. Takei, yes. who's jacked, yeah. is has a sword out, and he's <laughs> that's right. uh, fighting everybody else. He thinks he's like a swashbuckler. Yes. Because uh, that sounds insane to me. Yeah. Um, Anytime you think you're a swashbuckler, you're yeah, in trouble. Because there never were. Tell that to Christopher Lambert. I will. He wasn't a swashbuckler. He was a Scotsman. He wasn't even that. <laughs> I don't know. There's When's a reason why. The last why time you were in French, Scotland? French don't. They like, don't like exist in Scotland. <laughs> Where are you from, <laughs> McLeod? Lots of places. Are you sure? Because it sounds like you're from France. By the way, Highlander, as predicted, Chris, remember I told you yeah. that this bizarro, as I described it on Twitter, accent curious movie <laughs> would probably become one of our largest episodes. I would say that right now we are on track to break the single day download. People, what is it? God. And you know what? If it was back to school, people would be like, what? <laughs> Who? What is this? And I actually had some people text me, some super listeners text me and said like, this is a really fun, really enjoyable episode. I think they enjoy when you and I are sort of breezily not that engaged in the movie like we just were. (laughs) Oh, they're going to hate this one. (laughs) Two hours of talking about being moved by Close Encounters. Sorry, fans. (laughs) Gotta be me. Look at my heart. Look at it. Uh, Well, if you haven't had enough of Sorrel Book. You mean Brook. (laughs) No, Sorrel Sorrel Book. No, it's Sorrel Brook. Uh, you're talking how much about. Would you like to bet? Uh, I would like to bet a lot, but please do, please I do. already looked Before it up, you and you're out. right. <laughs> Wait, I'm so glad you mentioned Sorrel Book because that gives us an opportunity to do the Columbo oh. Cinematic Universe. Columbo Cinematic Universe. Ah, one more thing. He appears in the great Johnny Cash episode of Columbo, where Johnny Cash plays basically. Johnny Cash and kills his sister who runs his career and doesn't allow him the freedom to do all the fun stuff you're supposed to do, like, like have, have sex with groupies and take drugs. Sorrel Book plays his manager who wears these bizarre spectacles and doesn't really have many lines of dialogue when it's filmed in really weird camera close-ups. Oh, well, Sorrel Book is going to be appearing in a new episode of Newhart this same night. So I'll get a... Is that Bob Newhart playing the drums? Yes, because in this episode... And so I probably, if I'm looking through, I'd see this and I'd be like, oh, wow, Bob, I'd have the same reaction as you. And what kind of act does Bob have? It's like have? their college jazz band or something oh, like that. Oh, sure. Uh, gets back together and it includes Love to see those swinging book. white guys. Hey, did you see the New York Times uh, interview with Bob Newhart this no, week? No, I would like to see that. It's in there. I'm it's afraid out. that Bob's getting to the end of the line. And I mean, he he's old. In, yeah, yeah. He's got to be, is, is he 90? Like 50 something? <laughs> no, he's 90, I think 90 or 92. Wow. It was an even number. I can't Still remember. performing. Uh, yes. And he actually, it's a very sweet interview. And uh, at the end, he does say something nice does, about Lee Wilkoff, that he was wrong to no. <laughs> not invite Lee back. He stutters for about 15 minutes. And then he says, my biggest career regret is not bringing back that. <laughs> do, that you, do you regret anything, Bob? I, 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 there was a, gr- <laughs> a great young character actor. And I, you know, you wouldn't think this, but I was intimidated. He was getting a lot of laughs. At 8 p.m.? I, don't, I mean, I don't know what time we were actually talking about, but at 8 p.m., <laughs> I'm gonna, this sounds so good. You're ready to break the laws. Yeah, of time. I, I'm, I'm going to skip over. Uh, you want to get to this again? One of my favorite, and I know yours because they weren't everywhere all the time. TV's bloopers and practical oh, jokes. Oh yeah, practical jokes on Merlin Olson by fellow fearsome foursome members Rosie Greer, Deacon Jones, and Lamar Lundy. Ooh, let's steal his cane and Crystal Gale. Also, wow. bloopers by Joan Rivers. Wait, Crystal Gale's on the offensive line of the Vikings? I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah, oh. I mean, 
she only lasted she one a- season. Don't know why they drafted her, but yeah. And here's and, uh, da, da, da. a bloopers anonymous presentation to a Houston Ooh. officer like who ticketed anonymous? the police chief's car and had it towed. Well, I don't know what that is. I guess it's it seems to be that it's somebody does something embarrassing and so they get in trouble. But actually, it seems like this Houston police officer was fighting corruption. Hmm. And then on the next page is this great advertisement for a TV wow. movie. Can you describe that for our listeners? See if you can guess what story. For world power and one woman's love, he would risk his life, his family, and even his country. George C. Scott, one of the world's finest actors, as one of history's most infamous leaders. Ah, Mussolini, the untold story. That's a real thing. That is a real thing. What's great about this ad, so George C. Scott plays Mussolini, and you might think Mussolini pouts in real life and <laughs> sticks out his chin, but boy, does George C. Scott okay, wait. overdo it. Let's play a little of the promo. Uh, I want to know, is George C. Scott going to do a Italian accent, or is he going to just be George C. Scott? Let's find out. I have brought you peace. He also looks like he could be playing John Adams. He could be playing John Adams. He could be Roosevelt. (laughs) Churchill. Anyway, here's what we're going to do. We're going to invade the Russians. The best thing about this ad, though, is uh, it also has like a woman's sexy stockinged leg. Yeah, well, Mussolini, he is a man of appetite. (laughs) But I think the story of World War II doesn't necessarily have have sex thrown in. Not enough drama there. Not enough drama there. You know, that's a role Armand Asante could have really sunk his his tan into. Uh, Mussolini, the untold story. The untold story. Yeah. Anyway, so I wonder who this sexy lady is. Uh, but certainly, at whatever age, if I see these like legs like this, you're in. I'm going to watch it. Probably wouldn't know who Mussolini was. Yeah. I wouldn't care. Uh, though, I will say, I guess during commercials and when the sexy legs aren't showing, I probably would watch Kate and Allie. Oh, sure. Uh, that was a great that one. That was a good show. Loved a good show. That was a good show. And uh, Thanksgiving morning problems with the cooking and the guest list set the tone for Allie's dreaded meeting with her ex-husband's new wife, Wendy Malick. Allie, Jane Curtin, Ooh, Kate, like- Susan St. James, Charles, Paul Hecht, Jenny, Allison Smith. Some great actors in there. Yeah. But it does, like... Kate and Allie was a great show. They were both divorced women who yep. were then Again, roommates to... divorce. But why did she want to have Thanksgiving with her ex-husband? I guess maybe because for that the was kids. that was part of the the divorce culture was sort of like you know hey pretending man pretending it's fine <laughs> no it's like you know we gotta you still you still got the kids to think so about it's for, the, it's, for the well, kids for that it's for hacky comedic, for- hacky comedic concept I mean it doesn't really go any farther <laughs> how than that. dare you call it hacky <laughs> uh, nine thirty is when Sorrel book. And it is Book. It is Book. Would show up on New Should have been Brooke, though. Dick's reunion with his zany college jazz band doesn't turn out to be the swinging time he expected. Well, <laughs> obviously. Uh, Dick, Bob Newhart, Shake, Sorrel Book, Hog, Rally Bond. Uh, are you sure it's not a bluegrass band? <laughs> and then the rest of the gang. Uh, last I mean, one, how many more pages are you got uh, here? On t- on, at 10 o'clock, I'd watch Dick Cavett. Uh, just because Ooh. this seems like a pretty good lineup. Eddie Murphy and director Paul Schrader. Wow. Which I <laughs> love, love to watch. That's, what, the, what that green room you know conversation what? was like. I have the Dick Cavett box set at home. If that's on it, I'm definitely going to oh, watch that tonight. Yes. That's amazing. Um, that is amazing. Uh, by then, I'd probably go to bed. Great. Until next week, whether your opinion on UFOs is more akin to a young Spielberg or an older Spielberg, well, it's not really any of my business. In the end, what you believe is yours to decide.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Full Cast and Crew. I hope you enjoyed it. If so, drop us a line. You can email us at fullcastandcrewpod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at at fullcastandcrew or on Instagram at fullcastandcrew or, of course, find the podcast on Facebook. And if you really, really enjoyed it, take a screenshot of your favorite episode on your podcast player and forward it to a friend so they can subscribe and figure out what you're always laughing about. And if you didn't enjoy it, I don't know, drop us a line anyway. I can take it.